You're listening to the 12th episode of Season 3 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about strict, rules-focused Christianity not working, but is not an attack on faith. It's about trying to maintain some connection to God, despite everyone. It's also about depression, graveyards, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my concept album, Death in Tiny Spoonfuls. Episode 12, Friday Night. Here's the deal with this song. I lost most of my elementary school friends in high school when they all started partying and hanging out together away from their parents' homes, and I couldn't do that. I never did really connect with almost any brethren people my age much. The few brethren people my age I had hung out with on occasion turned their backs on me when I started going to the movies and hanging around with weird brethren outsiders from Pennsylvania. There was a distinct vibe from a couple of them of, it's either them or me. And the thing about the Brethren Outsiders from Pennsylvania was that although they were pretty much my only friends, I was not their only friend, nor even a friend at all, to many of them. I was just this guy who kept showing up to see what was going on, like a lot of other people. The guy who kept phoning and putting himself deeply in debt with long-distance phone bills, trying to work through depression and being single and Bible stuff. Curry had moved out to the West Coast and hadn't been able to convince me to go along with him. I was buying gear, but I didn't know any musicians, so I put up an ad looking for musicians to work on my stuff with me. I met many bands in the making who wanted a pretty boy charismatic frontman or guitar whiz or something like that. That didn't work, so I didn't get called back after meeting briefly with a number of these musicians. Then I met Bill through the same music ad. Bill and I were kind of on the same page in a lot of ways. Like a lot of Gen Xers in the 90s, the world seemed to be rapidly going on its way without us. We and our friends had crappy dead-end jobs we hated and feared losing, at least I did, and were trying to have lives, knowing that unlike our parents, we certainly would not have a serious career, a car, a house, and some kids as achievements unlocked on the way to 30. Bill's father had served on a supply ship at D-Day before he was 20. Bill and I liked a lot of the same music, and we wanted to write songs and learn how to record them and so on. Just everything about music, apart from music theory, of course. We didn't know very many people who liked what we enjoyed either. Our lives didn't revolve around hockey and Tim Horton's coffee and hunting. We liked obscure music, mostly from decades earlier, and nerdy comic book movie and TV properties. We'd read Dune, The Lord of the Rings, V for Vendetta, and Watchmen and Sandmen when there were no movies or TV shows or anything of those yet. We watched 90s superhero cartoons when there had never been a Spider-Man or X-Men movie made yet. We laughed ourselves sick over Ren and Stimpy, King of the Hill, The Ticks, South Park, Kids in the Hall, Quentin Tarantino, and Kevin Smith movies, and a whole bunch of British comedy like Blackadder and Red Dwarf, and we did the voices and lines from our favorite bits and so on. We were cool like that. My pen! Stop him! He's got my pen! <laughs> Spoon! Mm, I don't get it. Look, I'm just a sidekick. Oh, shut up, big nose. Hey, I'm saved. Inconceivable. I, I, bad is good, baby. Down with government. Are we clinging tenaciously to my buttocks? 
Hi there, this is Eddie, your shitbar computer, and I'm feeling just great, guys. You people are disgustingly fat. <laughs> That's just I. Boom, baby, boom! I'm the evil midnight bomber. What bombs at midnight? Oh, great. Where are you going? Come back. I really want to be your friend. <laughs> I'm so lonely. Message for you, son. I'll watch what he's going to sing. I'll watch it's too funny. My love for you is like a truck bell sucker. Would you like some making bells That's funny, man. Did he say making man? And in Paris, you can buy a beer at McDonald's. And you know what they call a, a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? Oh, man, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the f the quarter pounder is. And what do they call it? They call it the uh, Royale with cheese. Royale with you. That's right. What do they call a Big Mac? Big Mac's a Big Mac, but they call it Le Big Mac. Le Big Mac. <laughs> what do they call a Whopper? I don't know. I didn't go on a Burger King. Starting to smell a little like danger in here. Why you have an ostrich feather sticking out of your britches? I am wearing a cardinal's hat because I'm Cardinal Chanda. I have an ostrich feather up my bottom because <laughs> Mr. Ostrich put it there to keep in the little pixies. <laughs> Don't count your weasels before they pop, dink. I try and respect Rimmer and everything, but it's not easy because he's such a smeg head. <laughs> Did you hear that, sir? Mister, do you have any conception of the penalty for describing a superior technician as a smeg head? <laughs> oh, Rimmer. <laughs> you are a smeg head. <laughs> Bill had shown a problem with alcoholism in his teens, so when I first knew him, he wasn't drinking at all. And like most nerds who didn't party, we were watching these nerdy shows, eating a bunch of junk food and playing music and so on instead. Oddly, my first exposure to Kevin Smith wasn't from Bill, though. Karen Vetter distastefully handed me a VHS tape of Clerks and said, Do you want this? Maybe you'll think it's funny. Get it out of my house. I think it's annoying and disgusting. Learning to laugh at material with swear words in it was difficult for us brethren folks at first, but it must be admitted that it also carried a kind of fascination. Language could be colorful and emphatic even if one wasn't opining on the eternal lake of fire. Every now and then someone will tell me that if I use profanity, it just shows how limited my spoken and written vocabulary clearly are, and that's always kind of hilarious to hear. In my experience, eloquent people swear better. Not not at all. Because I did the first 25 years of my life with virtually no swearing at all, I can pretty easily not swear whenever I want. When my sister was a kid, she used to go out in the fields and swear at the trees just for the thrill. Not me. I do swear on occasion now, but I don't do blasphemy or hate slurs or stuff like that. I swear precisely when I means to. To Bill and I... Kevin Smith represented a nerd our age, living in the middle of nowhere, New Jersey, near my cousins, life going nowhere, and then suddenly making a black-and-white indie movie on film, a thing to entertain himself that we all related to in a way we hadn't related to anything on TV or at the movies ever before. 
Clerks depicted guys working the till at convenience and video rental stores arguing about Star Wars in a time when after the three movies, the holiday special, and a couple of Ewok cartoons and films, that franchise was over. You got a wife and kids, the two-story in suburbia. This is a government contract, which means all sorts of benefits. Along come these left-wing militants and blast everything within a three-mile radius with their lasers. You didn't ask for that. You have no personal politics. You're just trying to scrape out a living. Excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt, but uh, what are you talking about? The ending of Return of the Jedi. My friend here is trying to convince me that any independent contractors who were working on the uncompleted Death Star were innocent victims when they were destroyed by the rebels. Well, I'm a contractor myself. I'm a roofer. Done and ready home improvements. And speaking as a roofer, I can tell you roofer's personal politics comes into play heavily when choosing jobs. Like when? Nowadays, of course, Kevin Smith is just another male, feminist, vegan, Hollywood douchebag tearfully filleting the latest girl-powered IPs he is being paid to try to market to us aging, disillusioned nerds. Kevin went somewhere and made something of himself, all right? L.A., specifically. And he became something Hollywood does not need yet another one of. He's got more money than Scrooge McDuck, and he's the proud father of a smart young daughter. But it's not nearly as fun for us now that that's how far from our lives Kevin Smith has moved. Kevin Smith isn't someone I, at my age, in my place in time, with my quiet, boring, debt-burdened, child-free life, can relate to even a bit anymore. But we Gen X nerds have all lived long enough to have been waiting eagerly for more and more and more of our favorite shows and movies and albums to come out, only to find that, with oversaturation came dissatisfaction. Familiarity bred contempt. Things stopped being released or put out entirely and began simply dropping or dribbling out a streaming service as if they came, as they often do, from an old man's bladder. There could, after all we found, given a decade or two of them, be too many episodes of The Simpsons and South Park and all the rest for us to get excited about watching any more of them. It was terribly exciting to have Doctor Who and Star Wars and Star Trek and Indiana Jones and Ghostbusters and Starsky and Hutch and Magnum P.I. and MacGyver and Kolchak the Night Stalker and Miami Vice and X-Files and Twin Peaks all come back only because the worst thing of all, all those superhero, horror, fantasy, and sci-fi IPs that we hoarded musty old VHS tapes of no-budget 70s and 80s incarnations of, they finally got made, with big budgets and tiny concepts in the aughts. And then they got remade, and then rebooted, reimagined, and re-remade. Remastered, reloaded, and redone until they got very, very thin, kind of stretched like butter scraped over too much bread. Eventually, what had been barely a twinkle in our favorite creator's eyes, this thing that got cancelled after one season or was still only a book or comic or cartoon, or of which we had only a bootleg cassette of a very difficult-to-find Roger Corman movie adaptation of it that we'd picked up at a convention somewhere, these things had all become the digital celluloid equivalents of octogenarian Hollywood sex pots who'd had eight divorces, a truly horrifying amount of over-the-top plastic surgery and grease paint on absolutely everything, and now are fit for nothing but terrifying young children who preferred watching TikTok anyway. Also, somehow they made most of the new versions of our old stuff unbearably apocalyptically dark, nihilistic, and dystopian, but at the same time somehow empty and sincere and wholesome, with timed laughs, like Full House, under Zack Snyder's skies, good life messages like, believe in yourself, the magic has been inside you all along, and 
hate is actually pretty bad, we've decided. And girls from space can do anything without practicing. All of this with childishly garbled plot and incoherent characterization, trying to use bass drops and concussive explosions to drown out the tiny sound of the snapping of the remaining thread that once suspended our disbelief. Following, letter perfect, the marketing strategies of spectacle rather than emphasizing the archetypes of story and character, breaking the world building so stupid action scenes could unfold. Punchlines rather than conversations. And when we all started to lose interest, we were called racist and sexist, when really what turned us off wasn't the inclusion of more actors of different kinds, but the fact that the freshness and heart had long since gone out of the thing itself. There was enough heart fueling the first Ghostbusters movie back in the day to have kept today's entire bloated garish end-of-times DC cinematic universe going for decades. But that's now. This was then. Bill and I were filled with hope about music. Bill Moore wanted to perform live for large audiences. I wanted to make albums and learn my way around a studio. I definitely didn't have enough going on in my life. I'd moved from my parents' place finally, having graduated university and failed to get into teacher's college the first time I tried, the government being in the middle of cutting teachers rather than hiring or educating them. I was driving a rusty old car all over the area, getting cognitively challenged folks medicated, ready for bed and tucked in, staying up all night in their group homes as they slept, cleaning and doing meal preparations and laundry for the coming day, and a lot of thinking. I had time for that. My schedule was very unpredictable, but I managed to work a lot, days, mornings, afternoons, evenings, nights, whatever. Jobs that were temporary, permanent, part-time. I worked for three different companies. I applied for raises and better positions, but my university degree overqualified me, so I was getting nowhere. Bill didn't have a day job, exactly. He helped his retired war hero dad around the place. Bill lived in the woods not terribly far from where I live now, tossing firewood and hay and maintaining sap lines and rendering maple syrup each spring. I hadn't known Bill for very long, but I learned something, and it was a hard lesson. I could work for two weeks straight, have my first day off on a Tuesday or Wednesday or something, and I could drive the hour and twenty minutes it took me to get to Bill's house, and we could hang out and do music, but if there was even the slightest chance of a girl showing up or being somewhere Bill could get to her, he needed me to know to f*** off without him needing to tell me to. These girls almost never actually had any intention of getting physical with Bill, but in his head, they might, and so long as he could imagine it, I needed to see that coming and clear out. This was not how I was used to interacting with guys. I'd seen Jerry Seinfeld talking about this, of course, but I didn't really get it. Listen, George is going home with this Ava from his office. Really? Huh. What a world. <laughs> so we can go now? Uh, no, he's taking the car. Well, what are we going to do for a ride? I don't know. You don't know? Maybe Kramer can come pick us up. Oh. Great. Oh, this is great. How could you let him take the car? There's nothing I could do. It's part of the code. <laughs> All plans between men are tentative. If one man should suddenly have an opportunity to pursue a woman, it's like these two guys never met each other ever in life. This is the male code. And it doesn't matter how important the arrangements are. I mean, most of the time they scrub a space shuttle mission, it's because one of the astronauts met someone on his way to the launch pad. They hold that countdown. 
He's leaning against a rocket talking to her. So listen, when I get back, what do you say we get together for some time? Bill and I were playing open stages and little things like that for the first time and getting our stage legs. This one week, there was a talent show in Perth, a small town near here. Bill had met a young woman just out of high school, us being young guys just out of university, and she wanted to sing with us at the show. So that happened. We practiced a couple of times and did it. Liz sang the suicide part on Why Not, which I'd written around then. And Alan was there, a guy Bill had ranted and raved about being a right bastard, Bill having played in a band with Alan, them having a falling out, and Bill writing several angry songs about Alan, some of which I recorded Bill doing on my cassette four-track recorder and played additional instruments for him. In fact, the first thing I ever recorded of Bill was him singing angrily about not being done being angry with Alan. Bill played drums and everything, and I did some sloppy electric guitars. Crappy recording convinced Bill that I knew what I was doing with recording equipment. Alan seemed nice, and the huge conflict seemed like it might have been mostly in Bill's imagination. But anyway, it was a Wednesday. I'd not had a day off for a long time. I drove an hour and 20 minutes, went up on stage and sang three songs with Bill and Liz, two acoustic guitars. felt great about having managed a live performance, and then Bill was clearly angry with me. I was expecting to hang out play music recreationally, crash at Bill's place and so on, but Bill was acting like I was doing something truly horrible at that moment. He was angry because he thought Liz might have sex with him that evening, which she definitely would never be doing. And I hadn't taken off immediately after getting off the stage, so Bill was rude, Alan was nice, Liz was confused about how Bill was acting to me and why I was taking off, but off I took. I got in my car, Bill's stuff still in there, not knowing when exactly he expected me to drive it an hour and 20 minutes back to him, and me working the next evening anyway. And I drove off in the dark. An overwhelming, lost, empty feeling of having no one and no place to be descended on me. I drove from Perth, the town we'd briefly played at, through a bunch of little towns all closed up for the night, and I found myself approaching Smith's Falls, where I'd grown up, and gone to meeting, but where I no longer lived. And on the outskirts of the town was, I knew, a cemetery. And I felt like the whole living life thing was passing me by, leaving me out, eluding me. I'd just gone up on a stage, played songs I'd written, and had a bunch of people clapped and been very nice about it. You would think I would have felt good. 
Dave Chappelle's writing partner, Neil Brennan, in his excellent special Three Mics, explains succinctly what it's like to be people like us and have the good stuff just not stick to us. And the antidepressants worked, sort of. They definitely raised the floor on my mood, but none of these pills are panaceas. They just kind of lessen the symptoms. Depression to me has always felt like a virus that attacks your brain with negative thoughts. Like, and the medication staved off some of the thoughts, but a lot of them would still break through and would leave a void in their wake. Like, to say I have low self-esteem is not true. I have no self-esteem. Like, I don't have the architecture for good feelings. You give me a trophy, it'll just slide right down. Like, I, I just don't have the shelving. In fact, I used to have to carry around an index card of funny things I'd written or said or directed just to try to remind myself that I was okay. Now, one of the things I have often done when dealing with overwhelming depression is to satiate the dark urges with melodramatic, gothy emo crap, like writing songs about suicidal ideation in graveyards and stuff. One time, I felt like such a troll, I literally went and stood under a bridge until I felt less like a troll. Things like that made it impossible for me to take myself and my emotional stuff so deadly seriously. It kind of snapped me out of the mood or turned me into a different direction. And sometimes I was desperate to find something that would work like that, something that might turn the black tide of my emotions. And that night, a puckish urge to humor my suicidal, morbid ideation pitted itself against some pretty monumentally dark melancholy and despair. So, the same year I wrote the parody of the Wild Whipped Cream pamphlet, I drove into the pitch-black cemetery on a dark, moonless, starless night. I knew that my Uncle Jeff, Albert Hayhoe, and my grandmother had all been buried there relatively recently, but it was far too dark to read gravestones to go find a familiar one, and I'd turned out the headlights and turned the old car off immediately, because I didn't want anyone to see there was someone in the graveyard at night. I thought to myself, Bill doesn't want to hang out. Nobody else wants me around either, and there's no one alive to talk to, and so I think I'll hang out with the dead folks here for a bit. Maybe sing them a song. It's not like they're going to kick me out or walk off. Curry grew up with me. That sounds like a creepy, weird thing that only a musician would do. Okay. Um, <laughs> Perfect answer. Uh, and have you ever been the guy who I, does the thing that you take off after a girl and your friends can go home? Prob- I mean, you never did get the guy code. You still probably don't. I don't know. I don't know. I shouldn't say still. You didn't get the guy code. The guy code is that we're still good friends and we're still best friends, but the chance of getting laid trumps everything. The guy code is that it's not personal. Is it, You probably took it more personal than it was intended. And you were super disappointed because you had a, you were super looking forward to something and you took it more serious and it meant more to you than it did to him, which was unfortunate and a little bit rude. I'll say this. If I've ever done that to someone, I think it's rude. And if I've ever done that to you, I apologize. But I also would say that the guy code is that if, as a young man, if there's a chance to get laid, that everyone's supposed to understand. And everyone's, as everyone, and it doesn't matter if you drove 10 hours, two hours, or five minutes, or, or you flew across the country. At the end, at the end of the day, if there's a chance a young guy is going to get laid, you're supposed to understand. I'm being a little facetious and a little extreme, but I, 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 I'm trying to give you a different perspective. And you know that it's not a double, it's not a two-sided thing. So I never required that of him. When I was talking to girls, um, 
we could go off together and talk, but there was always talking that happened first that wasn't going to take 15 minutes. There was always going to be more talking than that. Right. But right. it, well, it, it wasn't, it was like a problem. And like, uh, it, was one, it was inconsiderate of the guy, yeah. for sure. So I took my big black Johnny Cash guitar with me, walked deeper into the cemetery, and sat on a tall tombstone I couldn't read, and a song came to me. So I sang it. It started... Hello, dead people. Do you sleep well at night? Or do you lie awake thinking you could have done better? Because I could really imagine myself lying six feet under in a grave after I died, thinking to myself, you know, you really f***ed up your life, man. It seemed like what I'd do, probably. I composed three verses. They were morbid and a bit humorous. Neil Brennan writes jokes to deal with his profound depression. For me, it's songs, which are often funny, and this podcast. They're how I deal, how I process. It feels like I'm slipping sometimes off the edge of a crumbling cliff edge, and I'm steadying myself by holding on to this tree I found growing there, expressing myself in words. And when bosses or family or Christians or girls I'm dating say they really need me to just, yeah, go ahead and stop expressing myself, okay, yeah, that would be great. It feels like they're wrestling with me and shoving at me, trying to make me let go of that tree. I'm not sure they know they're doing that, but they are. Now, I normally write my lyrics down before I forget them and record the melody before I forget it, but it was pitch black and I was sitting on a gravestone there. And it would be a bit before I was back home. And then I saw a police car stop at the edge of the cemetery. So I got back in my car and drove into Smith Falls. The police car did not follow. I sang the song a bit so I wouldn't forget the melody. Those things can be a bit elusive. I went into the Tim Hortons coffee shop, though I don't drink coffee, and bought a donut. I fished a pen out of my guitar case, and lacking any paper, wrote the lyrics I'd composed down in the flimsy little napkin that, along with the illumination in there, had been my reason for stopping at Tim's to begin with, and drove the remaining forty minutes or so back home alone. And in my dark basement apartment, in the middle of nowhere, I recorded a basic version of the song. Hello. this story by Troy. Oh, well, that's definitely a thing. That's um, certainly at that point in time, I think Bill was definitely uh, kind of on the on the trail for women whenever if, if something was possible, I mean I, I definitely got the cold shoulder before. I know you have. I'm sure that Dave had. I'm sure anyone in Bill's life. If to, some teller at a supermarket was having a brief conversation with him and the world could go away because he was going to try to have sex with her and probably would never, <laughs> ever have the courage to get anywhere near even discussing that pretty much. Uh, I know that like I've actually got an apology 
once when he told me that we we're going to go to a concert and he ended up saying, look, I want to take this girl because I think he thought he had a shot. And I'm like, all right, whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty flexible dude. I just like, okay, that's fine. Do whatever you want. I wasn't paying for it, so I didn't really have a say. But later on, he said, yeah, I really, I shouldn't have done that. I said you could go, and then I took it away. And he did end up uh, paying for me to go to a Radiohead awesome. show to kind of make up for it, because I think at some some level he would see that what he is doing is sometimes, like, harmful to relationships. Um, but, I mean, at that point, I think it was, like, glimmer of lucidity <laughs> from time to time. My big regret with him was the one time that... We got tickets to go to Montreal to see the Ramones with White Zombie. And there was a blizzard. And I had a really crappy car with bald summer tires and it was winter. And it was like a 1976 Ford Granada. And Bill was determined that we were going. And I had to say, like, Bill, we, we can't go. Like, it, we'll die. Um, in good weather, it's like two and a half hours. And, of course, Bill was an hour and 20 in the opposite direction. So it would have been a big deal. Um, even just driving to Bill's house in my car, we probably, I probably would have died before I got to Bill's house. You know what the roads are like around here when there's a really bad storm and the idea of driving a car with bald tires in that (laughs) when the car is like decades. So you're taking your life in your own hands. I'm sure that Bill never forgave me for that. And I kind of get it. Like we could have seen the Ramones with white zombie and I had to say, if I could go back in time, I would buy him a train ticket or a bus ticket and just say like, I'm sending you to see it just so that I won't. Well, yeah. be the reason why you didn't see Joey Ramone before he died. Um, just another good point of how it illustrates the difference between you. Yeah, because he would have gone? Well, just in the sense that if a similar situation occurred, I don't think he would feel as, even to this day, as deeply... He's probably still mad. He, he Possibly, if he still remembers. But, I mean, for you, you probably felt worse about the situation than he did. I He's felt like, as worse as he could make me feel. Yeah, in the sense that he'd be like, damn, I didn't get to go, me. and that's the thing. But you're like, damn, I let you down. Yeah. And that's the that's the bit of a split in the way that your mm-hmm. your your personality is, is that that's you came away with that more, probably more hurt mm-hmm. overall because it's like, damn, I didn't get to see them, mm-hmm. but damn, I kind of let somebody down, as opposed to he's like, damn, and f- you. Yeah. <laughs> And I felt every bit as bad as he tried to make me feel. I'm sure you did. Um, that's probably the only times that you won't get unbelievably. That's when you were talking about like the three stages. Yeah. You're going to go passive. If you are a part of what has happened mm-hmm. that caused the, the bad thing to happen, even though you don't really deserve to blame yourself, you're probably more likely to go into the shutdown and just be like, yeah, you know what? I f***ed up and, and mm-hmm. take on way too much baggage. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, as a result of the situation. The next time I played an open stage in Ottawa, Bill, who'd gotten no satisfaction from Liz and wanted to hang out, had some friends along, including Troy and Little Rob, who we called Little Rob because he's about five feet tall. If you think it's for any other reason, be careful, he's likely to take his pants off. I sang my three songs, one cover song and two of mine, including my brand new song that I called Wednesday Night at the time. I liked your songs, especially the bloated people one. Rob enthused when we were out on the street afterwards. Bloated people? I asked. Yeah, bloated people, Rob sang, and I said, oh, hello, dead people. Really? Rob asked. I think bloated people's better, but okay. So this is where I stopped in a graveyard and wrote a song for the dead people, Mm -hmm. and it said, hello, dead people, and then I liked it, so I went to an open stage, and Rob could 
first I love your song, like bloated people. And I said, like, what's <laughs> what are you talking about? And he said, you know, bloated people. Like, Look, I said they're dead, but I'm not speculating as to whether they're bloated or not. But that I really learned a lot of things that when you play songs live, people will come up to you and say, like, that song that you sang, like it just touched me. And then they tell you what they think it's about or what the words even say, and they have no idea, and yet it works. Yeah. No, I agree. There's, everyone's going to get a different thing. People will project and get something out of it. Yeah, well, I mean, this is another one, if you remember this. Uh, we did, just the two of us, an open mic night mm-hmm. on Elgin Street, of course, because that's where you did that at that point. Um, and we did a Stone Temple pilot song. Oh, yeah. And... If you'll remember, uh, while we were going through it, there was a couple of people in the Is back. That, uh, leaving yeah, yeah, on yeah. a southern train. I was doing going really nowhere. And I made you tune the guitar lower <laughs> so that I could hit the notes. <laughs> you can get nice and low there. Yeah. But yeah, so we did that acoustic. And um, the funny thing is, is that uh, whoever was, there was a couple of people who were obviously singing the song but they didn't remember the change right and they kept singing afterwards and we both heard them continue on to sing in the wrong key sing the, the, to sing the wrong uh part of the, the the chorus and at that point you know like then the song ended there was a bunch of people who were just like yeah woo!" They were like, so happy and they, they were, were singing the wrong key to the song they yeah, didn't like, care they didn't care but they they and they were totally off and they got lost but you could tell then that they had been singing that song the <laughs> whole time and so and like the biggest part of that song is the the sort of the vocals to it. And I mean, yeah. I played the guitar because it's it can be a bit of a complicated part. But you know, you were doing the singing, and I know we did a couple of other songs as well. But that was one that was interesting that stood out in my mind because that was one of my earliest earlier like performances live, mm-hmm. and that's one of the few times I've ever done where I'm the sole musician. Yeah, and you're singing, and we had practiced it and everything. And it was but, me me going around with the idea that if I stop playing guitar i'm not limited to only songs that i can play and that i I seldom have done that but it is cool when i can because it's just like here you learn this song and then do it perfectly and i will just sing and uh you know what's weird about the evening you're talking about is the other thing that happened is i sang in my deep voice and another guy went up and sang in his deep voice and then he came over and he's like hey like we sing in deep voices and it was like yeah no one does that and, of course, we started talking about, about Brad Roberts of Crash Test Dummies, and he claimed that he'd been um, corresponding with him in email and had been given some pointers about how to sing in a deep register and make it interesting. And We're having this whole discussion, and then he started preaching to me because he was a Satanist. And this is the first time that I've ever had that happen where he started explaining about his newfound faith in Satan. And I was absolutely, I wasn't quite kicked out of my church. I was in full 90s, ironic, mocking everything mode. So I could not messing with him. So so uh, he's like, I'm a Satanist. And he did the thing where he's like waiting for me to be shocked. And you don't try to make me look shocked because I don't give you responses. So he told me he was a Satanist, waited for the shock. And I said, oh, that's that's really good. So what, is, what does uh, Satanism do to enhance your life? <laughs> And he'd never been asked that, so he started explaining that, well, Satanism, like most people are just sheep. They just go along with everything, right? But he had his own private faith that encouraged him to pursue truth. And I was like, oh, yeah, like Jesus said. <laughs> so he's like, no, no, not like Jesus. Like, like religion's bullshit, man, right? So there's all the religious people, and they're going to, like, tell you what to do. 
And Satanism would say, no, like tell them that they're full of shit and go do what makes sense. And I'm thinking, yeah, like Jesus did. And he was like, but, uh, okay. But Satanism though is about like the world, right? Like it's all f***ed up and it's not fair. And Satanism is like following like honesty and like, you know, so what you know, you say what you know, and you live what you know, you be who you are. I'm saying, yeah, like Jesus did. And he's like, uh, yeah, but like. They might hate you for it, and they might uh, crucify you. And and it, I'll never forget that I was being a bit of an asshole. But to be fair, he was preaching at me. And I, I had had enough preaching for one Christian boy's life, and I didn't care what religion he was preaching. Yeah, this is the uh, the defense mechanism yes. thing. But this was, that was in a more playful sense, though. Do you remember everything, at like... Bill and Joel's that um, a Jehovah's Witness came to the door, even though they live in the middle of the woods? And they immediately grabbed me and made me talk to them. And, <laughs> and, they, ju- and they just this. watched. Because what happened is they would say, well, you know, the Bible says. And I'm saying, yeah, but the verse before that says this. And the <laughs> verse after it says that, which means that's not what it's saying at all. And they kept on fast forwarding to, oh, and the Bible says. And then I would finish the verse for them because I was a 21-year-old idiot. And what I found was that they couldn't make any of their points if I knew the rest of the verse. Um, because their points were cherry-picked. Yeah, the the just thought it was the funniest thing to just sick me on the Jehovah's Witness. You know, someone got into a theological discussion. Most times, if they you were involved, it was them bringing a knife to a gunfight. And of course, with Mark <laughs> and people like that, it was the opposite that I couldn't out argue them when they were sober, and they were they were challenging all of my upbringing before I was ready. They were, you know, I was trying to figure out how to find and do the Lord's will, and they're saying the Lord's will isn't real and it's not in the Bible. And then we'd go and find anything in the Bible that said Lord or will and is that really what it meant and they'd say that it didn't and they would say very sensible things and it it was with them whether they were sober or or drunk they were incredibly challenging to me about anything theological or the Bible which is exactly what I needed but yeah for most people it would be like hey my newfound faith in Satan you know makes me a better person oh yeah and I, I also asked that guy things like so your faith in Satan um how does it make you a better person? I, I asked all the sort of like what you'd ask of a religion. I said, your faith in Satan. So how does that make you freer as a, as a person? <laughs> you know, and uh, it, it, it wasn't nice. The idea with hymns is people can hear you singing the gospel message. So Christians always want to hear every syllable. But this was the heyday of Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder and so on. So that wasn't really the done thing. Here's a recording I made in the 90s for a guy named Rob who said he didn't see why people thought he sounded like Eddie Vedder. I don't want anything here left to remind me of you. I don't want anything here. I don't want anything here left to remind me of you. I don't want anything here. Looking outside, Mary said, there's covering the road right up ahead. Consonants mainly screw up the flowing of the vocal melodies as they tend to stop sung sounds. So singers tend to gloss over those unless they're using them rhythmically. And sometimes it helps to substitute other vowels for the ones that would normally be used to spell certain words because they sound better when you sing them that way. 
But suffice it to say, unless you enunciate like Weird Al Yankovic when you sing, making sure not a single joke gets lost, people will hear all manner of things. I love living in a time when if you type Weird Al Yankovic incorrectly, Microsoft Word will quietly let you know how you should have spelt it. I can't tell you all the different wrong ways people have heard me sing lyrics over the years. It's like there's a bathroom on the right with Credence and excuse me while I kiss this guy with Jimi Hendrix. I soon realized that most people think of Friday night as the night they have off at the end of their work week, and though most of us never landed a 9-to-5, Monday-to-Friday type job until we were in our 30s, I retitled the song Friday Night, though it's a very boring title. I could have gone with House of a Thousand Faceless Corpses, but that would have been just silly. I asked a bunch of people what they'd ask random dead people if they got the chance. I spoke about it with Chris, who grew up in one of our American Brethren Assemblies. What would you ask, or what would be you be curious about, or how might that go? What's it like now? <laughs> You'd want to know what it's like to be dead, obviously. Yeah, sure. I get fixated on am I a failure or not, so I'd be curious to see how they viewed themselves. Right. Do you lie awake thinking you could have done better? Like, I was literally picturing people in their coffin saying, damn it, like, why didn't I, you know do that thing on time and i forgot to do that they actually would be sweating the details long after they're dead and that's probably r ridiculous but that's what i was thinking sure you kind of relate to that a little bit no i just try to block all those thoughts out not think about them about uh regrets after death just regrets instead of lying awake and thinking about it i just lay awake until i can't stay awake anymore and then i pass out right as far as dead people trying to think if it's over the centuries, I'd be like, what was your you know, typical day like? Hmm. Did you do coal mining or right. did you have to beat your laundry with a stick or did you have machines yet? Would you be tempted to ask them for advice about your life? Uh, I, I probably would. I'd be like, what should I do now? It's always easier to pass the buck. Yeah, even to dead people. Dead people. Imaginary ones. His wife, Sherry, spoke up too. I would probably just ask the same sort of things I would ask a living person, which is, you know, you know, things about their life or what they liked about it, or what they regretted, what they would do differently or wish they could have done or. Try not to discriminate against them because of their living challenged status. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just, people are people. And so the things that would interest me, like if I got to talk to, I don't know, some famous person, I, I still would want to know them the person i wouldn't care so much about the fact that they were famous i mean it might be kind of cool like ooh, i'm talking to you know george washington or whatever but like i'd be interested in knowing who was he who who were you what mm. what what was your life about what do you what did you like or i might ask you know what's it like being dead yeah <laughs> what's, what's actually what what's actually beyond death because none of us know johan weighed in when i think about death it tends to be framed in terms of other people i don't really ha have any thoughts about myself after death i mean physically once i die that's it I, my, you know i cease to exist in terms of my 
my body. It just, it's rots away and that's it. I certainly think about death. I've got a family, right? So I got kids. Um, I'm doing a will renewal this month. In fact, I think about, um, making sure that the, you know, the world's going to keep spinning without me, but I want to make sure it's spinning in the right direction for everybody that I care about. So I think about that. I, I think about uh, my estate. Um, but I don't particularly care about what happens to, to, to me. Um, I, I know what happens to me. It's the same thing that happens to any animal. Melody, raised in a brethren group similar to ours, has thoughts. Would they be back from the dead? Like, could they tell me about heaven or hell? They've died, so they could answer all your questions. What I do want to know is, what is the moment of death? What is that like? Hmm. Like regrets? I don't know. I guess everybody has regrets. Or maybe they don't. I don't know. I don't like, I know, I feel like I know what I need to do in my own life to not die with regrets. Am I going to do that thing? I don't know. What's funny is, although regrets are, I think, implied in the lyric, I don't, I haven't needed to mention it overtly for each person that I ask this to bring it up immediately. The idea of death, well, what about regrets? Cheryl had something to say right away. Probably get into my spiritual coaching mode and listening to what they had to say and talking about it. Going into the past is a good thing, but you are taken into the past to see the good and to draw it out. So that's what you want to help people do when they look at their past to, I wouldn't ask them what they did wrong. I'd ask them what they did right. And I wouldn't ask them what they wish they did. I would ask them what they were glad they did. And, and to totally in that moment, change how they view their life. So basically when asked, what would you do if you could talk to dead people, you would life coach them? Yes. Help them see the, and draw the good from their life. That's awesome. And I love that answer. Interesting. So I'm going to revise my answer a little bit because I just thought, so I think if you're dead and I'm assuming that, you know, they, their souls have been in heaven or hell and they have, they, they know they are in a state of knowing. That's what I'm going to assume about dead people. They're in a state of knowing. And I'm going to assume actually that they maybe don't have regrets because because they're in a state of knowing they see the big picture and they see that the things they did or didn't do were part of the pattern of their lives and they made choices that were more or less theirs to make. You know, I mean, as opposed to things being forced upon them. Yeah, we have we have whole songs and podcasts about how often our choices are not our choices yeah and i i don't know i don't that we could connect that to regret we could worry that if we die we're going to regret how many of our choices were really other people's choices yeah yeah ideally i guess i would live my life thinking that i would rather regret the things i do do than the things i don't do yeah i definitely know that my worst regrets are missed opportunities and yes. not enough courage to do things that I should yeah. have done. Um, yeah. You know, when you do too much or go too far, at least you're trying and that's different. I spoke with Emily who lives up the road, way up the road from me too. I think a lot of it would be about regret just based on what you said. And that's me coloring it though. Would that be the same with you? If you were talking, would that be what you'd be thinking of regret or is that all me? Well, I think that, yeah, I mean, a lot of it would be about that, you know, what, 
I think that it's useless to have regrets, but also I've been trained into regret so mm -hmm. thoroughly that it's unavoidable at this point. You know, it's it's unavoidable to go back over those previous events and judge my previous behavior um, based on the knowledge that I have now and, you know, wish that I had done things differently. So I imagine that, you know, if I was sitting there with a cemetery full of dead people, some of the discussion might actually go that way, that it would be you Wondering know, what they regretted or, or how to deal with your own? Well, uh, both. And I think the other piece would also be wisdom and advice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What bits of knowledge and insight do you have to pass down to me? I'm, I'm always thinking in terms of cheating because I always want people to tell me how to be me properly. And you want to ask people how to live your life and all they can do is tell you how to be them you don't want to be them so mm -hmm. people don't have a lot to offer cheryl on the other hand amusingly i point this out to her when asked what she would do if she could talk to a bunch of dead people she would life coach them life coach them yeah she'd life coach the dead um which um, struck me as funny not her so much she she believes that that dead people can be spoken to which i don't necessarily uh but she believes that regret might be a genuine concern and so it, she feels that it would be her role if she were able to talk to a bunch of dead people would be to make them feel less regret and make them feel better about their life to get them to tell her about the things they got right, as opposed to the things they got wrong so that she and they could, could talk about, because that's kind of what life coaching is. Too much of life coaching is let's never mind about the stuff that's bothering. Let's just not think about it. Let's think about the happy. And there's a mm -hmm. place for that, but there's also a place for digging up those graves and seeing what's in them. Yeah. I think the whole idea of comfort is really good too. Mm -hmm. um, because I mean, that that is a totally different way to look at it, actually. Yep. If you're sitting in a graveyard full of dead people and you're they're going to come back to life, there might be a lot of people with those regrets and mm -hmm. that grief, you know, that they left so much work unfinished or those relationships were damaged or they wish they had done this or reached out to that person or enjoyed life more. I mean, what if I was to comfort them? Yeah. What if I was to listen to them and soothe away their tears and so on? Maybe that would be my role. And on a personal level, what do you worry most you might regret at the end of your life? What do you want to make damn sure you don't regret? I think not being joyful enough. There's a part of that that comes from within and there's a part that's circumstantial. I mean, life has been hard, mm -hmm. as you know. Yeah. But I think I would regret not taking joy in the moments where it was offered. So not being present enough and living enough in the moment to appreciate the good things, even if they were little. At this point, I feel a pressing need to start to have more experiences with my family to build up that sense of joy and love of life. You know, for example, taking more day trips. Um, even though if our son is very sick to give him those experiences like nature uh, well, yeah exactly with the time that he has with mm -hmm. us and you know building up a repertoire of joyful experiences so that he can have that but also so that we have that mm -hmm. to look at and appreciate um, when he's no longer with us so yeah I have a pressing I feel a pressing need to build on that joy um in, I think a lot of that comes from living in the moment, appreciating the little things as they happen, but also deliberately making 
those experiences happen. So whether that be through a day trip or a visit or travel or so on and so forth. Curry didn't like my question much. I would never do it. I don't particularly like cemeteries. I'm not afraid of them anymore, but as a young kid, I really didn't even like going in them very much. I certainly wouldn't want to go in one at night as a kid. I'm not sure I would right now either be super excited about it. I don't hold the dead in any particular reverence. Hmm. I think that most people don't live up to their potential. And I think most people die with a lot of regrets. I think most people let fear and social norms keep them from doing the things they really wanted to do. So I suspect that most dead people have regrets. My question was, just because someone's dead, I don't particularly have any questions I want to ask them. I don't particularly hold them in any reverence. But there's some dead people that I would. So I think that it comes down to really, it really matters to me who the dead person is. But having, like, if I could have a conversation, say, with Winston Churchill, that'd be really interesting. And I just run with the assumption that most people die with lots of regret. When my life nears its close, what I would love to be able to say is, again, the same thing I I say to myself every day, which is, I hope that I can say that some part of the world is better because I was there. Um, And I think that that sort of aligns really closely with what I think my meaning and purpose in life is. I think that we get to decide for ourselves. Um, And I know that for me, uh, my goal is to, while I'm here, not only to experience it in the fullest way that I can, but also to make sure that the people that I care about and love are able to experience it in the fullest way that they can. Um, That's really, whatever that means to them, that's, that's really important to me. Um, and I think it's kind of cool uh, that I can do that and that I can know that I'm having a positive contribution or at least continue to try to. Because the thing is, um, in a very real way, in a non-mythological way, we really do live forever, don't we? I mean, my... Uh, every time I interact with someone, and not just my kids, I mean like anybody... Um, I changed their life, right? Um, just talking to you, Mike, I, I'm changing your life. Uh, the question is, am I changing it for the better or for the worse? It, it's in little ways and it's in big ways, but just in, in knowing you, I have become a part of who you are, whether you like it or not. You know, I'm a part of you and you are certainly a part of me. And even when you are long gone, um, you are going to be that that part of me. You're going to be in me, those thoughts, that heart. Um, and that that is something that I'm actually able to pass on to other people, you know. Um, so in a lot of ways, Mike, you are a part of me. And in so doing, you're a part of my children. And one day my children's children and my children's children. You're always going to to be there. And I don't mean like in any kind of weird spiritual sense. I mean, really, you have helped make me who I am. And you have helped shape uh, my personality, my life experience. And that's what I'm passing on to all the people around me, not just to my kids. And what's crazy about that is I think pretty much every single person that I asked, I didn't mention regrets. Every single person I talked to talked about regrets. I generally assume, and this is a horrible thing to say 
to someone that you don't trust, and I trust you, so I say it, because I generally assume the vast majority of people are kind of a waste of time to talk to. Like, I'm very careful about who I spend time with and very careful about who I talk to. I have a fairly cynical view about the average person. They go to work, they go home, they have dinner, they watch TV, they go to bed, they search social media, they post stupid shit on Facebook, they get up the next day, they rinse, repeat. Most people have pretty vanilla, uninteresting lives. I think that's relevant for the dead people. Is I, I just assume you're the same. I just assumed you live a probably mostly meaningless life. And I assume that you probably re regret that you didn't do more. I think that you probably regret how much time you spent watching TV. I assume that you wished you had read more and watched less TV. I assume that you wished you had to exercise more and spent less time fitting on your fat ass. I assume that you wished you had to spend more time with your parents and kids and loved ones. I assume that you wished you had to been a better parent or a better kid. I assume that you wished you had to put more effort in at work in your career. And I assume that you feel that you spent too much time doing stupid, meaningless, self-indulgent shit. I'm picturing you in the cemetery saying, look, first of all, I want to start by saying that it's creepy that I'm having this conversation with y'all in an Ottawa Valley cemetery. And secondly, all of you who died because you drunk snowmobiled or you fell into the wood chipper or the hay baler, I'm not interested in asking you for any advice. Yeah, fair enough. Tim was quick to respond to this question too. If I wanted to, I could really do good in school. Oh, I could do this. Or if I want to be an officer, I could. I know. And that was always good enough for me. Mm -hmm. You know, that I could do it right. if I wanted to. And, you know, I now at this age, I'm going, well, shit, I'm running out of time. You know, now, I mean, I might have another 25, 30 years. I don't know. But I, I know now that it's someday isn't going to get here unless I make it today. I mean, today, I, uh, dude, I just try to love people. You know? yeah. and, I, and I've got some friends. My, I have a sister who's, who's married to a, another gal, you know, and, yeah. uh, and I, I love people. And, you know, I just, I regret a lot. You know, I, I, I regret going out there with that Christian band and do, preaching all that hellfire brimstone stuff, man. Jay Samko of the Northern Pikes connected the idea of dead people with COVID, which has really messed up his working schedule as a performer. I think the month of October, 156 people died of COVID here, which mm. is the most of any of the months, you know, nobody, there'd been, never been any more deaths than that. And, uh, and really that every one of those deaths affects so many people. So it's just sort of a, but we're, I guess if nothing else, Mike, we're living through history right now, you know, yeah. really what's kind of occurring. And it's great. It's really interesting to hear that from you as a, as a teacher, you know, how, how that would work, you know, and how the kids would be affected by all this. You know what, where I'm at right now, uh, I, I've got everything I ever wanted, you know. Mm -hmm. I do, man. I mean, I have a wife that loves me. My my daughter's doing okay. I, I mean, dude, I'm looking at, I've got Telecasters and Fender Stratocasters, and, you know, I've got all this equipment. I, mean, I used to play with this little classic cheap guitar, you know. I've I owned my own business. Uh, I've I, I sold park and recreation equipment for years. I built spray parts and, and skate parts and playgrounds and all kinds of stuff and and now i'm a, a professional painter and you know everything that i want is right now i don't have what i don't have i don't have a million dollars no and i wish it did that's one thing that's i'm hung up on that it's like, man if i just had a million dollars but you know i guess this is what if i had a million dollars then i have a million problems you know yeah uh, so I, I i i'm trying to and, and i didn't used to care about that so much Mike, but in the last several years i've developed diabetes Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I mean, my, my my knees hurt, and I'm go I'm getting older, and I'm not that 
indestructible, I can do anything kid anymore. And so, yeah, I'm kind of going, what am I doing with my life? What's going on here? And what's my purpose? And that's kind of scares me sometimes because, you know, I think people kill themselves when they don't find it, when they don't have a purpose. I, I agree. And I, 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 I've been struggling with that, man. Not that I've been suicidal, but I'm really wondering what the hell am I doing here? Ruth knew right away what dead people she'd want to talk to. Oh my goodness. I'd want to talk to the children. Of course, I'm a mom, so I'd want to talk to the children. Like, I live within walking, very, very, very short walking distance of a cemetery from the 17, 1800s. And there are so many stories buried there. Like, there are sea captains. There are widows of sea captains. There are small children, the age of my children and younger. And I would just want to ask, what did it feel like to lose your, your child at that age? Well, there's this one grave over here um, that's maybe someone who never married. Well, what was your life like that you never found someone to share your life with? Or, you know, these gravestones that are people who served in, in the military and lost their lives. Like, well, what was your story? One of my favorite comedians who I'm sure you either love him or hate him. I can't tell my guess if you love him, but is George Carlin. Love and, him. And one so of his so I'm live three times. Oh, wow. Okay. That's cool. That's cool. Different. I didn't realize that. That must have been after I left my phone. I really love George Carlin, too. He's my favorite yeah. comedian by far. And I, saw him, I saw him like two years before he died. And he did yeah, one he of was, his poems. And he got out a piece of paper. And he apologized because he hadn't memorized it. He was like 80, whatever. And he was reading this incredibly complicated George Carlin poem rant. He apologized that he hadn't memorized it. The quote that I think he is what I love about George was one thing he said that always just sticks with me is think about how stupid the average person is. And then realize that 50% of people are stupider than that. Yeah. And, and, and that always struck me is just so true some people don't like you to mention certain things. Some people don't want you to say this. Some people don't want you to say that. Some people think if you mention some things, they might happen. Some people are really fucking stupid. <laughs> Did you ever notice that? How many really stupid people you run into during the day? God damn, there's a lot of stupid bastards walking around. Carry a little pad and pencil with you. You wind up with 30 or 40 names by the end of the day. Look at it this way. Think of how stupid the average person is and then realize half of them are stupider than that. <laughs> and it doesn't take you very long to spot one of them, does it? Take you about eight seconds. You'll be listening to some guy. You say, this guy is f***ing stupid. So my kids have got my ears, the poor things. Um, but they also have the experience of, of knowing me and um, have that part of me in them, those words, those thoughts, the good and the bad, right? And in that way, I know that when my body is gone, when my mind is gone, um, I'm still here. I'm, I'm in everybody around me, in, in all the good and all the bad. It's all, it's all a part of me, my ideas, my heart. Um, you can call it whatever you want to call it, but it, it lives on forever and even once my name is forgotten yeah i'm still there 
my experience has helped shape the very fabric of the universe in which I inhabit, just like the experience of knowing you has shaped me permanently. Um, and that will continue to spread on forever. I have, in, in my very existence, I have become a part of this universe. And I like to think that it's a, it's a positive part. Um, and I really hope that I can say when I go that the universe itself is better because I, I was here for this infinitesimally brief blip um, on, on the scale of the universe for this very little second. It's in this minute way slightly better because I was there. I really hope that I'll be able to say that. So that's what I would say keeps me getting up and uh, going about my day. Uh, and that's why it's so important to me that I, I try to make sure that, that those contributions that I make are good contributions, um, good by my judgment. I, I'm the one who gets to make that judgment, aren't I? Um, you can judge for yourself whether my contributions to you are good. All I can say is that I tried to make sure that they are. The rest is up to you. But um, that's what keeps me going, for sure. I want to be there in positive ways for my family and, and my friends, people that I love. And I want to make sure that I can do as much good as I can. Because I know that whether I'm a good or a bad person, whatever that means, I am there forever. I, I am a part of this universe. And so I want to try and do my best to make sure that it's a good part. So that's that's what keeps me that's what keeps me going. That's what I think about when I go. <laughs> Trying to work things out part 7. Trying to use words with non-church people. As the moon rose over the evergreen forest, a reunited Troy and I talked about back in the day. Troy grew up in a culture where people casually swore about and at people, places and things. And this functioned as a release of tension and a way to vent without a serious fight happening. Troy observes that many guys from teenagehood forward managed to vent steam, relieve uncomfortable tension in their interactions by simply swearing at each other a bit, having little squabbles, and then getting over that and continuing hanging out. I tried to explain this to my childhood friend, Curry. I think guys are better at this, that women are better at a lot of things, but I think guys have the thing where they're just getting on each other's nerves too much, like, oh, f yourself, Todd. And then they're good like the next day like they it, they're fine and i don't i don't have that code either so with me so I, don't, I don't have that code either no so no no if so if, if someone if tells someone, me to f off i'm not good and we needed to have a talk no if someone tells me to f off and they're serious and and it's an anger tone there's only they're gonna they're they're, they're either going to get a punch in the face yeah as they would have got as i was younger i still could yeah. get it i'm not above that i'm still quite frankly still not above that i've it's not that long ago I punched someone in the face and it felt pretty good. They're either going to get a punch in the face, and I'm, I mean, and I, and I realize that, that how stupid that sounds for a 50 year old to say, but it, it's, it's what could happen. Mm -hmm. um, they could get, uh, they would most certainly be told to f off back in a more aggressive tone. Um, and I'm certainly not going to back down. But no, I don't have the, I, I, I would, or the more likely what would happen if I like the person, respect the person, I would say, really? You want to talk? I would try, I would try to negotiate and settle it through. But Which makes sense, I, though. I'm going to have to throw Bill under the bus a bit to do this section properly, but I hope it's a clear graphic example of two people who need to deal at different times and in completely incompatible ways. How much of a mess that makes. How much of an impasse. 
and about how being raised with no swearing, no brothers, and no team sports or experience with groups of guys or anything meant I just didn't communicate and interact in a usual way with groups of guys or even individual guys. In case you didn't notice, a band is a group of guys, like a team. Troy, Bill, my then brother-in-law Mish, and I were in bands back in the day. Troy talked about why the Bill we knew in our 20s apparently needed to have all these fights with me back in the day, ones that I generally flat-out refused to have with him. Sometimes, if you're angry or hurt and there's little outward reason for it, you try to create a situation that explains your feelings so they stop being so inexplicable or disproportionate or embarrassing. Troy talked about how Bill and I were not always getting along when we were friends and bandmates and roommates, how I needed to talk about everything, but Bill fled putting things into unvarnished, plain words and discussing it all at all, how Bill needed so many things to be pretended and so many things never mentioned, needed me to join him in feeling mutual resentment and paranoia and antagonism when I just didn't feel it, needed me to join him in not speaking to each other and being awkward, but I would ignore that and continue speaking to him. Needed to be passive-aggressive and sarcastic, and I'd pointedly ignore that, because maybe we were working on a song or something. It was almost like if I didn't get angry with him, he didn't think I cared. We'd kind of be having a fight over whether we were having a fight or not. I needed to talk and try to work everything out, and Bill needed me to wish him ill, as he apparently wished me, but I didn't. Not because I was a good person, I just didn't feel that way. I felt anger and hurt too sometimes. When someone's trying to start fights with you, that's kind of inevitable. But mostly, when I feel anger or hurt, the only thing I think is going to make me feel any better is talking about it, trying to fix it, taking a random, chaotic, upsetting thing and crystallizing it into words, agreeing what happened and what it was, not continuing the fight and doubling down on what's making it suck to begin with. I have trouble respecting people's right to not deal by carefully not letting themselves or anyone else around put into words stuff that's clearly going on. I was raised to pray, to put concerns and wishes into words and ask the Almighty to intervene. And I didn't know how you could, for example, pray that someone seek help for their emotional breakdown if you couldn't put emotional breakdown into words for their alcoholism or gambling problem or marital strife if you were unwilling to admit that alcoholism or gambling problem or marital strife are words that might well be used to describe the situation you were praying about. To me, avoiding putting plain, harsh reality into words always seemed childish on a level with la la la, I can't hear you. If no one says it, then it somehow isn't real yet, not until we decide to let it be. I think sanity is about living in the real, what's real right now. And I don't think the universe stops and waits for us to acknowledge what's going on like that. Reality rolls on with or without us, sane or insane. In my high-tech job at Nortel, they winced at people saying there was definitely ever a problem, so instead made us say there might possibly be an issue or not, and that of course we could be wrong, and that we were very sorry if we'd upset anyone by bringing it up to begin with. Maybe we'd misinterpreted what was merely a new opportunity or a paradigm shift moving forward people from this point in time. Management at Nortel were requiring us to be like a delivery truck that can only turn right and doesn't have reverse or, or brakes, but it can go really fast. Going fast is cool. And why would you need to turn left if you can always turn right? In Bill's case, we were friends, we were roommates, and we were in a band, 
and we were about to lose our jobs when Nortel crashed, and Bill was going through a rough patch, and alcohol was a factor, and I, of course, noticed all this. And I had crazy drunks, soon-to-be ex-brethren friends, and in the case of Doug, ex-alive friends, in Pennsylvania. And I'd talk about any of it if you let me. Needed to, in fact. If it seemed to me to be a serious problem, I'd think it was serious enough to bring it up. I'd want to see if I could get the person to talk about it and let me know what their view of it all was. Maybe we could agree about stuff and work together. Bill needed to fight about any number of things peripheral to central problems with neither of us admitting what was going on, with everything ending in some kind of quiet resentment or a complete breakdown of the friendship and the band. That's not what I needed. In Bill's case, as I said, alcohol was a thing at that point. He'd beat it once, and we'd been allowed to put into words that it used to be a thing years ago for him, but that he'd beaten it. No one was supposed to put into words that it was presently a growing problem again, that we were all constantly tripping over and tiptoeing around. In my case, brethrenism and Christianity were a thing, and so were my brethren friends and struggles with my church. Bill and I were roommates when the three men from my assembly came to visit me about why I was never getting unexcommunicated ever again, nor would they or any other brethren people be talking to me in future about any of the stuff, all of which I was trying to talk with them about. My drunken brethren friends were more fun than me, for sure, but increasingly hard to justify in terms of their treatment of others, alcohol being a factor with them, too. But no one was supposed to put that into words, either. Bill and Troy and Chris, the sound engineer, were actually in the car for at least one of Doug's car accidents. Doug wasn't drunk at the time, but stuff was going on. Stuff no one was supposed to put into words. Nah, it was all good. Especially if it wasn't. And all of it was forgiven. Enabled, even. But I had something less forgivable than mere alcoholism going on with me. I was addicted to speaking what I felt to be the truth all the time, aspiring to fairness instead of cheap shots, believing words might help, hashing things out instead of fighting, not going away mad even if people were trying pretty hard to make me do that, never shutting up, never shouting or swearing or tossing insults, never really indulging anger in a recognizable way, trying to avoid doing anything I'd have to apologize for or pretend I'd never done. When someone's being aggressive and trying to make me be aggressive and I'm trying to be assertive, and they push and push and push until they actually get me, I have a real reluctance to admit that anyone's getting to me, that what they're saying hurts. So I kind of push being assertive to the point that the other person's going to perceive it as almost aggressive. Is that right? If someone comes at you in an aggressive manner, for whatever reason that happens to be, your general is I, I will be calm we will be relaxed and maybe maybe that will calm you down too that's the i think the initial idea we will stay calm cool collected you're getting emotionally you know aggressive about the whole thing if that reaches a point where the other party whoever it happens to be isn't looking for that and they want to hurt you now they're going to start pulling things out of the old ammunition belt and hammering at you until they find something but you're actively going to not let that happen. But in retaliation, like as a, as a return fire of sorts, your defense is usually just to attack the reasoning that they're using for bringing that out in the sense of like, if they say, yeah, yeah, this is, you know, remember that thing that you told me about you as a child, I came at you, they come at you with that as a way of saying you are pathetic your thing would be like, well, why would you bring that that up? Did, did that happen to you as a child? Like, it will never be direct. You will never just tell that person to go f- themselves. Mm-hmm. 
it'll never happen. I mean, I don't think I've ever even seen you come close to that kind of engagement, but it will, you will sort of parry and, 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 and poke, parry, poke, parry, poke. And that's you getting aggressive as, as aggressive, I think, as, as, as possible. <laughs> and we kind of agreed that I wasn't raised that my feelings matter. So I wasn't raised to give in to them and fill the room up with I feel blah, blah, blah. I always felt that losing my temper was sin. I know some people who think that Jesus never got angry because that would be sin. And it's that's hard to justify given all the discussion about God losing his temper. Um, people will say God's angry, but not that he lost his temper because they think that the loss of control is the gravest sin. And so I think I've always been scared to lose control, especially of my temper. Uh, I never wanted to have to apologize and say, look, I completely lost my temper and didn't mean any of the things that I said. And that puts me in what we're talking about. Um, you were saying that it's almost like fencing. Yeah, like it is. It is definitely like fencing in the sense that it is a parry and then a quick little poke, like not not a not a jab, not a thrust, not a, a way to injure. You don't want to disable the person, but you just want to keep poking at them and just go stop. Just because just stop. I need a way to say off, and yes. I can't say those words. Yeah, when, like when generating generating that much loss of control would be uh, just as damaging as anything that the other person could say. To, uh, in fact, probably more so. It does. It comes across as overkill because. Their insult is like, you're an asshole. And my insult is, well, you've never been able to deal with conflict. And it's like, whoops, because mine's true and everyone knows it and no one's saying it. And I'm actually not an asshole. So when he said it, he was just trying to make me mad. And what I said wasn't just trying to make him mad. It was truth and it wasn't gracious or kind truth. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing is it's 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 a really... It's like the. It's almost like literally taking the concept of killing with kindness, yeah, and really doing it, like actually killing with kindness, returning good for evil in a way, and heaping coals of fire on their head. You are not a person that wants to do evil. You're all, you're hardwired as a result of your your upbringing, um, and losing control as a whole is just not something that's easy for you and probably other people. It's, to, it's not hard for with. people to tell they're getting to me yet I won't lose my temper. Yeah, I, I think if someone's observant and they're getting into this, like, in anything kind of, you know, this sort of where emotional breakdowns can happen, regardless, good, bad, whatever, I think that, yeah, like, some people will see, like, okay, this is what is getting mad for you, but it's it's definitely for you. It's like, no, I've maintained my composure. I haven't, my voice has not changed in modulation or or or... You know, like my level of tone, you know, my, my loudness, all of that is I'm in control, I am speaking. And in fact, you're probably going to in some ways slow it down more to seem even because like, yeah. all right, well, now we're going to talk like this. And you're kind of going to go into almost um, like a psychoanalyst kind of mode at that point. And this definitely works as a teacher, but it doesn't work when people are trying to have an argument with you. Uh, who are not. who are equals. I think that there are a lot of people that they just want a, a huge boom like the kaboom yeah. you know they where's the earth shattering kaboom the individual like whoever's being gotten to this point they've made a commitment to it they may have realized that now they can't back down so they need to get you to to just come up to the level so we can all go yep we all made a mistake we all get to walk away and feel better if people get really angry and then suddenly back down 
it's going to get the person feeling hot on the neck. That classic, I've done something really stupid, mm-hmm. and they nobody wants that. Nobody ever wants that. And so they usually double down and just get even angrier or walk off. But the solution could be completely solved by if you had just responded with a loud, fuck off or go fuck yourself. And there's literally no malice anymore. It mm-hmm. just needed to kind of come to yeah. a an explosion, an eruption. Everybody's like, oh, you know what? We're all here. Let's just calm down. Something that I tell Christians is that, because Christians have a problem about swearing, and, you know, far be it to justify swearing, but maybe, um, almost all animals have a warning sound that means that we're not, we're not playing. If this keeps up, I'm going to bite you or something. So, I mean, a lot of animals have hissing sounds and growling sounds, roaring sounds, and they have posture, um, everything that basically says... If you have any idea how to read my body language, you know that there's no more um, playing around with me right now. Cats do it. Dogs do it. And there are those really dangerous dogs. They don't growl. They just bite you. And that's what I think of some of us Christians have a problem with is socially we smile or be completely calm and then do something that actually really does hurt the other person. And it may be in the form of like with me telling truth that people don't like when they were just throwing fire, but there, there was nothing behind it but emotion. And I hide the emotion and because I don't feel I can let it out. And I say something true that is hurtful, maybe. No, it's biting, I think. Well, and again, this is me because, I mean, it's definitely something that should be disclosed is that I was not raised in any kind of real religion. I've been on the periphery exposed to it. So, I mean, it's important that any of my observations are strictly from a person on the outside but Mm -hmm. most of the time i think with people certainly like yourselves who are raised in a very indoctrinated kind of thing you're taught that there are like almost rules of engagement Mm -hmm. there is a geneva convention for all interaction because you have a person that tells you here's how to live your life the best way so we had two church divisions and from the best of my experience of it and hearing about it, someone punched somebody, but they never swore. <laughs> that just... They actually tore up families, told the whole world that all these people were wicked people and separated from them and that they were serving Satan. But they would never swear about them or at them. And in the one case, apparently, a guy punched someone in the parking lot, but never swore because that... And the punching, obviously, is a big... Once you've done that, everyone can say, ha, that guy punched somebody, and now you've lost. Like, you more than lost the engagement. You're also now someone who, in the past, punched somebody one time. And you'll notice that with that culture, how embarrassing that you're the guy that punched someone one time. But nobody had to be embarrassed that you're the guy who said off that one time, because nobody did that. I kept trying to talk things through and work things out when the done thing was to say, it and you. Because that just wasn't an option for me. Wasn't who I was. Wasn't who I was trying to become either. Bill and I continued to hang out awkwardly for a couple of years after Doug's death, and eventually I put into words, Bill, you're acting and talking like you resent me. You don't seem to want to hang out. You don't seem to want me in the band. And this meant now Bill had to deal with it as a real thing. I'd forced him to, by putting the reality I was living into words he'd now heard in the air. I didn't do it with any anger or as an accusation or a cheap shot. I gave no opportunity for it to be a fight. 
So Bill pretended it was, said, fuck it, and fuck you, and fled the conversation as one does, responding like a regular non-brother, not trying to be like Jesus person. I couldn't respond in kind. I wasn't feeling it. I said, I wish you well. Because I did. I said, we don't agree, but I don't feel any resentment towards you. You're working stuff out. Because we didn't, and I didn't, and he was. And so Bill, from then on, fled contact with me in person or online because he couldn't connect to how I dealt with stuff, couldn't deal with it how he needed to deal with it. He needed there to be a big dramatic falling out to explain it all, and there absolutely hadn't been one. I do think I'm a bit odd. I have always been incredibly stubborn about not changing my behavior despite typical male social pressures being exerted upon me. In high school, when Curry was getting on our bus, a guy ran up behind him to punch him in the back of the head, so I tripped him. The guy turned and started to scrap with me, so we danced around a bit. Then once I'd actually tried to punch him in the mouth and accidentally got him one right in the throat, which hurts a lot more, I got right up in his face and told him off for trying to fight Curry or me, said we had no reason for fighting, so the whole thing was stupid and stood there aggressively waiting for him to flee the scene, which oddly he did. I remember bullies twice my size telling me they'd kill me if I didn't go fetch their jacket from the cafeteria where they left it and similar things and how I always refused to do a thing they said. They'd threaten, I'm going to kick your ass. And I'd very calmly look them in the eyes and say, well, you're going to have to. And I'm still not going to go get you your jacket. This would stump them. They told me I was crazy. Curry would swear at me sometimes, but given the fact that I didn't feel I could swear at all, let alone back at him... It didn't really work for him to do it much. Mike, stop being such a f***ing asshole, Curry would say. And I'd ignore that. So I'd say, Mike, you're being a f***ing asshole right now. Perhaps I was refusing to stop the car uptown so Curry could jump out and fight a guy he'd claimed had looked at him funny as we drove past. When pressed, I might say, well, you're being a complete and utter idiot. An idiot? Yes. Complete and utter? Yup. And then we'd usually laugh. When living with Bill, who, like Troy and Curry, grew up in a house with a lot of casual, gruff swearing, I wasn't ready for him occasionally losing his temper and unleashing a string of swearing sounding to me a lot like Donald Duck. I was always tempted to laugh. Bill took as much pride in swearing tirades as he did in guitar solos. He saw them in Kevin Smith movies and George Carlin routines. To me, it felt like Bill was doing a scene from a Kevin Smith movie or something. It didn't seem quite real. One time, Bill was raining profanity on my head, his voice getting higher and higher, and he paused so I could throw some profanity back, and I just said, well, I disagree, but I wish you well. This caused a redoubling of the swearing and abuse, and I annoyingly, calmly said, I understand, but I still disagree. Dave walked through, just wanting to go outside for a smoke, and Bill dragged him into it. The two of them turned to me and waited for an explanation for my odd behavior. I'm... Returning good for evil, I told them, like I was raised to. They weren't raised with the Bible, so they had to wait for me to explain that Jesus had recommended turning the other cheek, kind of a challenging, insulting sort of passive refusal to engage in a fight, and heaping coals of fire on people's heads by returning civility for rudeness and kindness for cruelty. It tended to come off as passive-aggressive and pious, I admitted, but it had quite an effect, I said. I don't care if that is in the Bible. It's f***ing wrong, Bill groaned. The really hard part for Bill, once he'd started doing exactly the same thing to me my church had started doing a couple of years prior, 
was explaining to everyone we knew why he was suddenly desperately avoiding me now, as if there'd been a huge fight and wanted everyone's help in doing so, why he maneuvered me out of our band by making sure the others didn't let me know when we had band practice or gigs, why he tried to forbid our friends talking to me, why it was awkward when the band suddenly needed a sound guy or to be recorded or to borrow a guitar or needed to drive somewhere, and I did it for them. I'm no saint. I was hurt. I was annoyed, but I waited for it to be dealt with in a better way. I don't have a lot of spare friends lying around. I thought if I didn't fight back and return good for evil, the thing might blow over that we maybe would deal. But rather than dealing with things, Bill chose to lie about it. He needed me to have done something inexcusable that had forced him to nobly do what had to be done. Little Rob heard about it and said, Are you two bitches? Because you're acting like a couple of bitches. My not just dropping things often reads as resentment rather than my need to deal, my need to discuss things. It was like with my church. I was hurt, but I wasn't walking away, so I actually had to be shunned to get rid of me. You're not supposed to demand that people deal with things in words. You're supposed to take a hint, and after that, a walk. I'm afraid I've just put the whole thing 20 years later into words in a podcast, because... I just might have finally given up faith and hope in Bill and my church ever dealing with any of this. I haven't communicated with Bill in years, though I see his brother all the time. Any time we've been in the same room since, his wife has said hi and I've said hi back, and Bill has pretended I'm not standing there, just like many people in my church still do. It was not long after that that Dave, knowing how I need actual words, did me the favor of explaining to me in a Facebook message that as his then-girlfriend and soon-to-be wife really didn't like me, he was being a bad friend by choosing her over me, but that this was what he was choosing to do. Dave and I retain a lot of the same friends on Facebook and can see each other's comments on there, but Dave has never communicated with me since that last message. I have never respected Dave for courage in the face of conflict or social awkwardness, but I have always respected his kindness and his knowing how to handle people. I talked with my sister Debbie about her upbringing not really helping me navigate a whole bunch of this. I think it's just convenient because um, passive aggression makes uh, a lot of people feel a lot more comfortable than straight-out aggression. So it's really about people um, denying what the conflict, the severity of the conflict and um, taking the easy route. I, I agree. Like, I think that people want to be, that per, people want to hurt somebody, but they don't feel that they can get away with being seen to be aggressive. So passive aggression is a way to hurt people, but somehow get away with it. There was so much passive aggressiveness, though, um, in within the whole subculture that it, for me, the biggest trauma that I've had to work on over and over again to heal is trust. Mm -hmm. And it's trust in that the people that I'm working with, even within the school system, that they're not, you know, going to stab me in the back or that they're not going to somehow or what that person said wasn't a, you know, somehow a jab. Like the, the damage from the passive aggressiveness is much more insidious than if I had just been punched in the face over and over again. With my father and my upbringing, I wrote a book to deal with it in words, giving up on the opportunity to ever discuss any of it openly with him. My mother made him read it, though. Dad doesn't really know how to put his side of things into words usually or have a discussion, so he doesn't. I have to guess all of that stuff. Either way, we get along pretty well now, 
I got to use words, and he doesn't have to. It kind of works. I'm sure Bill and I are very different people now. But when he didn't want me at Troy's wedding, and Troy invited me anyway, and it was awkward and Bill didn't speak to me there, and when Bill, of course, then didn't invite me to his own wedding, and it was time for Dave's wedding and Dave also didn't invite me, it felt kind of familiar. It felt like that night in the graveyard. It's not just my church that treats me this way. It's not just Christians. I'm the common factor here. Part of it is me actually trying to act like I think Jesus would, instead of my merely being a cheerful church person. And part of it is how I'm made and how that doesn't mesh with how normal people act. There are limits to how different from ourselves we can act for any length of time. The constant here is me. I need to talk about the things. It's how I deal. And if I'm not allowed to deal that way, privately and discreetly, if enough decades go by and I give up hope of that, stuff seems to end up in a song or a podcast or both in order for me to get on with the rest of my life because that's how I get over things and move on and get on with the rest of my life. That's how I deal because that's what I need to use words. I'm all about words and not words like f*** it, f*** you, or c*** either. Words that I can help in are words that aren't a fight and aren't cruel even if they might be a bit on the nose. Words that are unafraid to touch the heart of reality. Let's look in the wicked mailbag. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. Walk into the wicked mailbag opening. The wicked mailbag. What's in the mailbag today? Something a little different in the Wicked Mailbag this week, rather than me reading people's thoughts from Facebook about topics I was going to be discussing in upcoming episodes, Sandy, who hopefully isn't living in the desert alone, listened to last week's episode, posted comments of appreciation and praise on Facebook about it, and gave me permission to read them. This is a first here. Thanks, Sandy. You really nailed it in this episode. I hear so many overlapping and important conversations surrounding deconstruction. I don't think I've ever heard one address depression, suicidal ideation, and suicide so directly. It was amazing to hear the many and varied experiences surrounding it. I was in counseling for 15 years and never once heard someone acknowledge that having joy shoved in your face is in itself depressing. I'm definitely going to listen to this one again. Thank you so much. What some faith traditions have done with joy is so damaging. I used to be with an organization that pushed for a revolution of joy. We could be joy-fueled, high on joy. Even when you're down, still joyful. In fact, we could just build enough joy in our lives we would be resilient to life's difficulties. And therein lies some blame-shifting. If you continue to struggle, you have experienced a catastrophic failure to achieve maturity. I am tired. The depression I struggle with on the daily is not from lack of effort to overcome it. And after all I have experienced, I am plenty sick of hearing that it's because I didn't trust Jesus enough or try hard enough. I am just exhausted. I appreciate the part in this episode about those who write poetry to express dark thoughts. I used to do that in high school. My parents shut that down fast. I've never really gotten back to it. Anyway, thank you for this podcast and episode. Joy says, why does writing and singing and recording about dark thoughts help them go away? 
I believe it's because it validates those thoughts and feelings instead of suppressing them and hoping they go away. Dealing with death is a heavy subject, but it's a necessary one. See, that's praise. Compliments. I almost feel them. It's possible the world is right, noting that if you compliment me, I tend to get awkward and confused, and if you hug me, I always flinch, that maybe I shouldn't be complimented or hugged, because I don't seem to like it. But just maybe it's good to try to get me used to those things. I don't think I got a compliment in the meeting. It didn't come with a warning about the dangers of pride, and I didn't get touched much after I was a toddler apart from getting hit with the Bible paddle, mostly for arguing about the Bible and rules that didn't make much sense to me. There is something really warped about your parent, you know, telling you that basically they're going to hit you because God wants them to, and it, they're being a good parent by doing this, and it hurts them more than it hurts you. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, withdrawing their affection from you and, uh, you know, for The pain other you feel reasons. is love. Love from God channeled through the loving father. And then having to come down and apologize and sit and have this weird fake um, affection given to you mm -hmm. um, of restitution. And it didn't, that hug didn't feel like a hug. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel like restitution. It felt awkward. It felt stiff. It felt like, what the hell just happened here? Like the last few songs, this one worked best live with just my voice and the guitar, preferably in a graveyard. But I will try to create some kind of listening experience for people who don't have the benefits of me in the room performing when they listen to it. Now, sitting meekly in front of the microphone and playing an acoustic guitar-only version of the song isn't quite the same thing as playing a song for a room full of people whose attention you are trying to get and keep by doing dramatic things. I'm sure if I'd only played this alone in my apartment, I never would have taken the closing vocals to nearly this dramatic a place. How does it feel? How does it feel? How does it feel? Before I took a bed track of this to George's store to get him to do drums back in the day, I already knew I wanted to do something Phil Spectory, something like what all those folks reminiscing over the 50s did in the 70s on Happy Days and movies like the Rocky Horror Picture Show and Phantom of the Paradise and on the soundtrack for Twin Peaks and so on. You can hear me trying that in the bed track already. I had George use some brushes. best on bass. 
I always love an opportunity to make my vintage 70s Vox tube amp with its built-in reverb and tremolo sound like itself, like what it is. heard this kind of thing in songs and didn't know at the time that that's sometimes called a skank for some reason. So I called the tracks Guitar Quack 1 and Guitar Quack 2 because it's not entirely dissimilar to Nashville Chicken Pickin'. I can't really do a solo at all unless I kind of can hear one already in my head. For this one, a simple bendy one suggested itself. I remember back in the day, Bill seeing this as one of those things he generally just couldn't do musically. Mostly, Bill was better at instruments than I was, but he didn't excel at guitar solos, nor vocal harmony or keyboard. He was a natural on bass, though, and he could scream bloody murder. Hammond B3 organ through a rotating Leslie speaker was and what it sounded like, and I equally knew I'd never be able to afford one. So I got a MIDI controller going with a plug-in, and you could hear me messing with the emulated Leslie rotating spin speed wheel on the controller to slow the wobble down without exactly knowing what I was doing. I'd done one of my one-man choir things back in the day. And for the podcast, I added in some close harmony as well. How does it feel to sleep beyond a home? When there's nothing left on earth could ever hurt you. And also some finger snaps in with taking the thing to fill Spectre Town with tambourine and shaker. It's my party and I'll cry if I want to, cry if I want to, cry if I want to. You would cry too if it happened to you. I know that was actually produced by Quincy Jones, actually, but it sounds like Phil Spector to me. Phil Spector was a famous music producer, famous for producing a series of chart-breaking hits, for threatening the Beatles with a gun in the control room, and for murdering his wife and dying in prison.
nothing left on earth could ever hurt you. How does it feel?